Perhaps she wouldn't have bought a press if she didn't have the additional motivation of helping her boyfriend. For years, Nin had funneled her husband's money to support Henry Miller and other artist friends. Her decision to establish wait, wait, a press... Wait, wait, wait. Did you just say she funneled her husband's money <laughs> then to help her boyfriend? Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm, I do love a love triangle. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dedicated listeners and soon-to-be converts. Welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast, a shared imaginary space where readers and writers make meaning together. We're your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Good morning, Shannon. We've been away, haven't we, again? You've been adventuring all over Australia. That's that's the impression I have. Don't Don't burst my bubble. All over Australia, having adventures, living off the land, and I have been slowly shaving my face for three weeks because, you know, there's a lot of beard there. Uh, and in a way, they were equally exciting adventures. One could uh, argue otherwise, but we're not going to go into that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you've ruined our branding, Gareth, with the shaving of your face. Yes, I have. Uh, I didn't think it through. Um and you know there was something there was something charming about the little bits of white in my beard. They're all gone now. It's just a just a naked chin. It's quite provocative. Uh, I've been frightening people everywhere I go because I've had a beard for six years or so. I, um, I grew one, and then I got a I got like a day job. People, and they said, you know, do, you, you, if you shave it off, you can't grow it back because you can't be walking around having stubble. And that frightened me into having a beard for six years. Um, I think there were some uh, platypuses hiding in it, but they've all been freed now. And because uh, you saw some platypuses, didn't you, when when you were away on your across Australia trip? Yes, I did. We saw platypuses. We saw red belly snakes. We saw uh, a showdown between a, a skink and a snake. Uh, so the snake made a crazy dash at the skink to eat it and missed. And we had a whole, this was on a walking track. I don't know where we were, the Yungala National Park. And there was a whole bunch of uh, English tourists behind us. And they're like, oh, my God, snake. And my partner and I were very excited because we love snakes and lizards. Didn't see a cassowary. Uh, so any listeners who have seen cassowary, I would like to know your experience. Because I've heard that they attack your cars if they if you give them like the stank eye or something. Uh, and I just really know what it would have been like. I was uh, had my eye peeled the whole entire time, but I was unfortunate. No, you were very fortunate. Um at, uh, so, so down on the central coast, we have the uh, the reptile park. Um, I'm going to give them a plug. The reptile park is good. They have a massive. Um, I think it's a. It's not a brontosaurus. I don't think it's like a, obviously not a real one, but it's it's to size. It's gigantic, uh, and it's on the side of the mountain. Um, so when you're coming into the into the central coast, you'll see this big yellow. It's either a brontosaurus or it could be something like a diplodocus or something. I think it is a bronchosaurus. Is it? Let's go with that. Let's go with that anyway. It's one of those things. And they dress it up at Christmas and it's really really gorgeous. Um, But they have cassowaries uh, there and they're all behind fences and you walk over um, bridges to go past them because they're not messing around. 
they're, they're not messing around. Uh, they are vicious, vicious creatures. They're very territorial and they will take you out. So, you know, if we have a lot of tough listeners who think, you know, they can take anyone, that may be true, but you cannot take a cassowary. Cassowaries are serious. So that's my advice to you. This is the life lesson of the day. Uh, don't get scared into never shaving and don't ruin your branding and don't get into a fight with a cassowary, which is a perfect segue, I think, into today's topic. Over to you, Shannon. Okay. Oh, no, that's not your segue, Gareth. I feel caught. I feel trapped. Okay. Well, today we are talking about publishing. Um, and the reason why we wanted to talk about publishing was because we were initially inspired by Radcliffe Hall, who we had believed uh, by a throwaway comment on someone else's article that she had self-published her book, Well of Loneliness, which was banned well and truly until after her death. But it turns out she did not self-publish that. She actually got a publisher to manage all that process for her. So we want to talk about publishing and there's a few different ones. And we've actually just come off a call, confused ourselves between all the different levels of publishing. So we're actually going to try and clarify that up for the audience today. Traditional publishing. So what are the benefits and what is what happens with, when you get a traditional publishing deal, Gareth? Okay, so traditional publishing... You know, we've got the big five. We've we've talked about the big five. It, it also includes smaller independent publishers. And so basically, you know, typically these, these days you need an agent. Having an agent was has always been a, an advantage going back decades and decades. Um, and an agent is like the cool friend that takes you to the parties that they know about and no one else can get in. And if you've ever tried to send a book to a publisher, you'll know what I'm talking about. You can't get in. They're not reading it. They're not letting you in through the door. But if you have an agent, the and agent just goes. that's because it ends up on a slush pile, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just there's a lot of great people out there writing a lot of work, being very creative and, you know, hats off. Uh, the publishing industry can't cope with it. So they try to have a, a selection process. But But honestly, a lot of books never get written. Uh, read, sorry, before they're rejected. Uh, and that's just, that's just how it is. It's very unfortunate. So an agent is, is a kind of a, yeah, a, a basically a, a cool friend who gets you in through the door and introduces you to all the beautiful people. Uh, and they take an interest in your work. And if your work has merit, and typically if you've got an agent, your work does have merit, uh, then they start thinking about whether they want to publish it, and 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 so it is. At that point, uh, it goes into editorial, and there's usually well, there's supposed to be three stages of editorial: structural, copy, and proofreading. Uh, and and then they print the books, get them on the shelves. Uh, you know, beautiful cover design, hopefully with gatefolds. You have six weeks to get a readership, and then your book is typically pulled from the shelves, and that's it. Um, you typically get an advance as a writer. It's not very much. If you've spent five years writing a book, you if it's with a big publisher, you'll get $1,000 for each of those years. Uh, and then you start getting royalties once that advance is paid off. So it's one of the things you sort of think in advance, you know, that's just to keep me going. But And in a sense it is. But it's more like a loan. It's a loan against future profits. Uh, you don't have to pay back advances, but you – you don't see a penny until the money that was put into the advance 
has been paid off. Then you start getting royalties. It's typically around 10%. However, we have, uh, in, in a previous episode, we discovered that there are publishers now offering around 40%, which is certainly a lot fairer and probably a more representative amount in terms of the amount of work, blood, sweat, and tears, and, you know, spirit matter that authors put into their work. So that's that's good to see. Um, and it works pretty much but the same. But you definitely same. wouldn't see that. Uh, you definitely wouldn't see that from your traditional five, your big five, would you? I mean, and that would be Penguin Random House, Hatchet Book Group, HarperCollins, Macmillan Publishers, and Simon and Schuster. I mean, yeah, I think you, they're ten to fifteen percent. Yeah, it's 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 a ten percent situation. I maybe fifteen. Um, I'm not aware of it being up to fifteen, but it could be. Uh, I guess if you're, I don't know, Stephen King. You probably command fifteen percent. You could go elsewhere. You know, you got a little bit of leverage there. Um, but most people, it's around ten percent. Uh, and and so this is why you can't get rich writing novels. Uh, you know, even bestsellers don't draw in that much money. What you need is that wonderful Hollywood money, where your book gets picked up to be made into a film, and they give you you know a bucket load of money. They give you a bucket of money. It literally comes in a plastic bucket, uh, and they just hand you that, and you run away cackling. And then nine times out of ten, they don't make the film, and in a couple more years, you can option it again. It's wonderful. So that's uh, that's traditional publishing. The the smaller independent uh, publishing houses uh, are sometimes regionally based, so they will only publish authors from the surrounding region. That's one way they sort of cut out too many submissions. Um, and then you've got university publishers, which, again, are small publishing houses attached to a university. And you've also got niche ones like Tor. Uh, Tor do mostly science fiction and fantasy, and so that's that's what they're doing. Uh, and if you've written uh, a sequel to Great Expectations, they're not going to publish you, uh, unless, of course, it's you know set in the future or in some wonderful elvish land. So that's traditional publishing in a nutshell, I think. Um, and when we were doing the research for this, we discovered that some self-publishing models are referred to as indie publishers. Uh, and I thoroughly reject that, uh, because there, there's a completely different, uh, business model in place in terms of who's taking all the risks financially. But I'll hand over to you, Shannon, to non-traditional publishing choices. What have we got? Uh, well, I'll just wrap up uh, traditional publishing. I think, I mean, we've just talked about the dismal pay involved, uh, especially with the advances, the loan and the royalties. Uh, the reason why people want to go the traditional publishing route is because these guys are in control of the creative process and the distribution of your book. And uh, we like to think that would include marketing, but we've kind of seen lately that marketing seems to go down the wayside and actually these, uh, when they pick you up, they want to already know if you have an audience or a market base because they essentially want you to push your own book. Those are the pros. If you aren't lucky enough or, you know, your work is so creative and such a masterpiece that no agent is going to pick it up or a traditional publisher because they're unsure of what they have their hands on, essentially, uh, a lot of authors can choose to go down the self-publishing route. And what that essentially means is that 
all the work is up to you. And that is involved in getting your manuscript to the best possible uh, version of itself it can be through all the editorial team. And you have to go find that editorial team. And additionally, as well as that, you have to make the connections with the bookstores and the distribution and the marketing yourself. So that is what self-publishing is. Now, if you don't want to do that, your option then is to go to maybe the hybrid model where you can pay a fee to um, someone who will take on that manuscript for you and get it to printers and get it uh, through an editing process. And you've got to be wary here because what has come up with these hybrid models, uh, there are a lot of reputable ones, but you have to, you know, do your research on it. And it's something called uh, vanity publishing. So we've actually had uh, colleagues of ours that have gone down that route. And essentially, vanity publishing, I mean, do you, what are your thoughts on vanity publishing, actually, Gareth? Don't like it. <laughs> um, no, I don't, I don't think it's a good model at, at all. Because essentially, I mean, you are covering... All the costs, you give up an enormous amount of control and you cover all the costs yourself. So all the risk is yours. Uh, and I, I don't think that's a great model. I mean, with self-publishing being so manageable these days, uh, I would say it would be reasonable to say always go self-publishing over vanity publishing. I, I don't think there's any competition in that. There are self-publishing services that will do a lot of the work for you, but they're kind of working for you in a less authoritative way. You're kind of telling them what you want. They're making it happen using the resources they have. That's a bit better, I think. Uh, but, yeah, I think, I think basically, you know, if you're going to go for traditional publishing you want to know that they're going to back you, they're going to push you, they're going to use all the resources that you don't have that they do at their disposal to help you be a success. If they're not going to do that, it really begs the question, why not self-publish? I mean, what's the difference? I, I think, especially for me and probably you, Gareth, because um, we're writing our own pieces, this is a common question for writers and us as well. What road do we go down? Would you go down the traditional publishing or self-publishing? And so we jumped on Trusty Google to see our successes of people who have gone down that self-publishing route. And we have a few names that we would like to talk about. And I think going back in time, would you say Jane Austen is before Beatrice Potter? Maybe we oh, should go yes, well, well before Beatrice Potter. Yeah, let me tell you about Jane Austen. We've talked about Jane Austen before. She's... um. I think I've said she's not one of my favorite authors, but goodness me, she's important. And so, so she self-published most of her books. Now, the options she went with were to publish by commission and by copyright. So the copyright model is where you write a book and, you, and a publisher buys it for you outright. And that's it. It's their book. They get all the money thereafter. So they pay you quite a bit, uh, relatively speaking. The commission model is a lot more like self-publishing in that you cover the costs and um, the publisher uses the resources at their disposal. You put out a book and you share the profits. Um, so Jane Austen mostly chose to publish by commission. She did... 
she published um, she sold the copyright of Pride and Prejudice, which was a which was a huge mistake. I, I found this rather terrific um, article called Jane Austen's Publishing Journey. Uh, and I, I, I recommend you seek it out. It's from janeaustenworld.com. And they say that, unfortunately, Jane Austen did not make a good choice for a second published novel, Pride and Prejudice. Perhaps she'd been discouraged because her father had previously offered it to a publisher who chose not to look at it. Now, it's worth noting that the father sent a covering letter and basically said, my daughter wrote this novel. It's about the same length as another novel that you may know, blah. And that's all he said. Um, and so, you know, he didn't sell it very well. And this is where agents come in handy. They do a bit more work than that. So she sold the copyright of Pride and Prejudice to Thomas Edgerton. Um, they paid her £110. Uh, then they paid all the costs of publishing and took all the profits. Uh, that The first edition was published in 1813. A second edition that fall, that's a bit of a worry if you've sold all rights to it. And a third edition in 1817, they made quite a lot of money off it. Now, the first book she sold was, she had to go with... Um, with what became Northanger Abbey. At the time, that was called Susan. She sold that for £10, and it never got published. And so much later, her brother paid the publisher the £10 and got the book back, and then they published it as Northanger Abbey. Uh, the reason why they changed the title, and I think it's a better title, frankly, but the reason why was there was another book called Susan that had been published in the intervening years. But Sense and Sensibility was her first published novel. And this one was done on commission. So she had to put in some money out of the profits. She had to pay for the production, the advertising, and the commission. Um, and it did very well. Had she not done it that way, had she, had she sort of done it all off her own back, up front, it would have cost her £180, which was a lot of money back then. To put that in perspective, her annual allowance was £20 a year. So this was Edgerton again. Um, and again, 750 copies were published in 1811, which was a really large print run back then. By 1813, the copies were sold out, and Austin had earned £140 in profits which is not that different to Pride and Prejudice. She got 110 up front and that was, that was it. The difference is that Sense and Sensibility continued to get republished and she kept getting money from it uh, up until her death and then obviously that went elsewhere. That's kind of the gist of her publishing journey. Uh, I think she worked out pretty quickly that giving up the rights to her books was, was not the way forward. One of the advantages for, for Jane Austen in self-publishing was, yeah, she, she kept control. She got to decide what was working and what wasn't working. And, and really, uh, once she became quite popular, um, she had a bit of a failure with, uh, with Emma. Emma. Emma didn't sell well, and neither did Mansfield Park. But, again, she maintained control. A, a lovely little uh, end note that I want to share. Uh, I'll just quote it directly. A professor writing for the British Bank has estimated that Jane Austen's lifetime income from the books from her books was around six hundred and thirty-one pounds before tax, 
or £575 after tax. Thank you, British taxation system. That's just a little more than the average yearly salary for a country clergyman. It's hard to make clear comparisons to today, but one estimate claims it's equivalent to about £45,000 in today's money, or in US dollars, about $56,000. Now that's across, uh, what, six books, so she didn't. She didn't clean up, did she? I mean, you wouldn't say that, but um, but she no. did maintain control. And and you know, for for a woman at that time, um, that was significant, I think. Uh, and obviously, the books that she didn't sell outright, uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice was not bringing money into the, into the Austin family for uh, decades to come because it was gone. But the ones that she hung on to and, and truly self-published in a sense, uh, yeah, have provided a fortune for whoever inherited the rights. Um, so, yeah, so, so there's one advantage to self-publishing, I think, and that is control. You, you can control your destiny a lot more uh, definitively. And even if you have a failure, as she did with a couple of her books, they, they sort of didn't do very well. Nevertheless, she came out just yeah. ahead uh, and didn't have to kind of rue the day she sold away all the rights. Yeah, I actually think it's a similar story from Jane Austen to Beatrix Potter. So, again, we have a female author in the uh, 19th and 20th century, and she had a vision, and she decided to self-publish her famous book, Peter Rabbit, And initially she did try to get uh, access to an agent and a publisher, but they rejected the book, but she had a vision. And I'm going to read a little bit so people can understand. But initially from rejection to now, this book, Peter Rabbit, has sold over 45 million copies. Jesus. Which is just, you know, crazy. I know, right? But everyone knows Peter Rabbit. In 1893, when she was 27 years old, Potter wrote a charming letter about Peter Rabbit to Noelle Eastwood, the son of her former governess, Annie Moore. It was one of several letters Potter wrote to Moore's children over the years. They were so well loved that Moore suggested that they might make good children's books. So Potter borrowed the letters back and set about expanding Peter Rabbit by adding text and illustrations. She sent the book off to publishers who promptly rejected it. Part of the problem was that the publishers didn't share Potter's vision for her book. They wanted rhyming poetry. Potter's text was plain spoken. They wanted a big book. Potter wanted small. They wanted the book to be expensive. Potter wanted to keep the price around one shilling, writing that little rabbits cannot afford to spend six shillings on one book and would never buy it. These ideas weren't whims, but were based on Potter's assessment of the book market. Her manuscript was modelled after the story of Little Black Sambo by Helen Bannerman, a bestseller at the time. Potter made her book small like Sambo, not just because she believed it would better fit little hands, but also because it was on trend. After a time, there began to be a vogue for small books, she wrote in 1929, and I thought Peter might do as well as some that were being published. Since no publisher was willing to listen to her ideas, Potter chose to self-publish The Tale of Peter Rabbit. In September 1901, she ordered 250 copies for £11. 
A few months later, she ordered a second printing of 200 copies. In between, the publisher Frederick Warner Co., which had previously rejected her, began negotiations to publish the colour edition. By self-publishing, she was then able to show the Warren brothers that the book was a success. And then within the first year, uh, Peter Rabbit sold over 20,000 copies. So I remember you saying that Jane Austen printed 750 and that was a considerable amount for a book and again to 20,000 copies for Peter Rabbit within its first year. That's, um, yeah, I mean a bit of time had passed but that's that's an impressive number. Absolutely. I, I must say I've sort of fallen in love with Beatrix Potter just from your description of it. <laughs> Doesn't she sound marvellous? Oh, I wish I could find it and I'll actually put it in the show notes, but she wrote a very funny letter back to her publishers once they had signed her on saying a bit sarcastically that she was right and, you know, there must be a lot of Peter Rabbits jumping around and Roberts, rabbits are very popular nowadays. So she had a bit of cheek to her, which I very much love. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess those two, uh, Potter and Austin, really tie together well in, in terms of, I mean, Potter particularly had a very strong vision for the product as well as uh, as an art form but but also as a commercial property. She seemed to have a very clear sense yeah. of what she wanted to achieve. So self-publishing made sense. And she's, yeah, and she seemed to have a finger on the pulse of what the market wanted more so than the publishers. So I think there's a lot in that going down that self-publishing route. The next author I want to talk about, completely different end of the spectrum from a lovely children's book to incredible erotic BDSM uh, type of uh, novel. And if you haven't already guessed yet, it is uh, Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James. And, uh, you know, we are talking about successes of uh, self-publishing on this podcast, and I think this is one of those ones as well. So it has, to date, sold over 100 million copies. And, you know, we sit back here, Gareth, and we're like, how is that? Because a big complaint about this book, uh, sorry, E.L. James, I mean, you're you're a millionaire. You can't uh, be too worried about what we say in our little podcast. But the editing is not great. Um, there's a lot of issues with her books. And, yet it's a very much loved uh, series by people and by uh, the sales, as we can see. Now, where did she begin? E.L. James uh, started off as a... A fan fiction, she started off as a fan fiction writer. She was very much inspired by Twilight, so Stephanie Meyer's Chase Teen Vampire Romance. And she even was publishing online under the name of Snow Queen's Ice Dragon, uh, erotic stories about the characters. And I've just got to start reading from this article, which uh, really kind of elucidates what I think is my conclusion based on self publishing and success. Mm hmm. For reasons that are still baffling to James, her work went viral. She changed the characters' names to avoid copyright infringement, and in 2011, a small Australian publishing house agreed to publish her story and saw a ton of success in her first year. In fact, within one year, she received a traditional publishing deal, and the rest is history. The book sold so quickly in Britain that the printers ran out of silver ink for the iconic black and metallic grey covers, which James designed herself. 
In the United States, Vintage printed more than a million copies a week to meet demand, overwhelming its paper supplies. So I think part of Elle James' success is because she was publishing online. Uh, She already had a fan base and when she published her book on Kindle, she already had that fan base that followed through and then a book publishing, no, publishing, a publishing group picked her up to publish her book. So she already had that fan base. But beyond that, I can't say why this book out of all the other books has been quite a success. What do you think on that one, Gareth? Well, they say sex sells. So, I I mean, that might be part of it. (laughs) Um, You know, and it is interesting that she went from, sort of publishing in forums to publishing uh, digitally through through Amazon to more traditional um, or at least uh, hard copy publishing thereafter. That does seem to be a sensible trajectory uh, in terms of managing risks and, and potentially gaining rewards. It is a little bit of a mystery to me, um, why she's quite as successful as she is, because there is a there's a deep well of very interesting erotica, uh, you know, floating around the bookstores, and I, I do wonder if people might be surprised what they could find if they look a little further afield. Uh, stuff that might make her seem quite tame, and yeah, a little bit less appealing. But you know, I mean, who's to say? Uh, it's an amazing achievement to, to have gone from forums to you know, mega sales. Uh, and this was not the yeah. case with, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping onto your wagon. Uh, this was not the case with uh, Anais Nin, um, which seems like a good pairing to me. Uh, because she wrote, uh, I mean, Nin, Nin was a diarist, but, but she wrote a lot of uh, commissioned erotica during her lifetime. And she found it quite difficult to get published at times. Uh, and certainly uh, uh, a nice Nin press, which I'm not going to talk about actually because it's not as interesting as Gmore Press, which we will talk about. But she, she basically had two self-publishing uh, attempts uh, the second one was very much about keeping her own work in print because it frequently was falling out of print and, and never sold as well as I think it should have. And certainly, you know, if you enjoy E.L. James and you enjoy erotic fiction and uh, that sort of thing with a bit of an edge to it, um, uh, Nice Nin is a, is a really good option to look at, uh, much better writer arguably, um, and arguably much more interesting subject matter, but very much the same sort of uh, thread of, of um, sexuality running through it. Um, so but if, so she had the uh, Anais Nin Press, and, and, and that was a very confusing business. But before that, she had Gmore Press, which ran for... Uh, can I do the maths? I can't do the maths. Six years. Six years from 1942 to 1947. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to read you just a tiny bit. It's actually from the Gmore Press website, uh, which is a weird thing because it doesn't exist anymore, but it does exist as a website. I think it was created by someone who appreciates her work. Uh, but as, as far as I know, Gmore Press doesn't produce anything anymore. 
but it hasn't since 1947. Anyway, uh, Anais Nin fled France before the German invasion for New York, and unable to find a publisher for her works, she resorted to self-publishing. Nin had never intended to become a printer publisher of her own work. Perhaps she wouldn't have bought a press if she didn't have the additional motivation of helping her boyfriend. Ladies, isn't this always the way? Useless men needing help all the time. It's terrible. Um, For years, Nin had funneled her husband's money to support Henry Miller uh, and other artist friends. Her decision to establish a press... Wait, wait, wait. Did you just say she funneled her husband's money... (laughs) Than to help her boyfriend? Yeah, basically, yeah. She's a really interesting lady. And, you know, if you want to find out more, read her work because a lot of it is autobiographical. It's very, it's very salty. It's very spicy. Um, mm. and I don't know why she I do love a love triangle. Sell. Oh, my God, yeah. And Henry Miller, too. There was a lot going on there. It's, it's very interesting. Um, so her decision to establish a press was motivated by her maternal attitude toward her current lover, Gonzalo Moore. Uh, So you can see where G. Moore came from, Gonzalo Moore. She was compelled to secure for him productive and meaningful work. He, a chronically underemployed communist from a wealthy Peruvian family, was intrigued with printing, as you you are when you're wealthy, a wealthy communist. His brother was a newspaper publisher, and as a self-employed letterpress printer, Moore would be both a proletarian workman and romantic artisan. In December of 1941, Nin and Moore founded Treadle-operated Platon Press for $75, which would be about a thousand US dollars now. Uh, quote: "The man said we could turn out Christmas cards on it, but not fine books." Nin wrote, but Gonzales was sure it would work. Nin borrowed $75 from one friend and a hundred more for types and trays from another. Then there was only the space to find. She delighted in a third-floor attic of a very old wooden house at 144 McDougal Street in Greenwich Village. Quote, it was a skylight studio, ideal for the work. It was old, uneven, with a rough wood floor, painted black, walls painted yellow, end quote. The rent was $35 a month, um, and as a comparison, she paid $60 a month for her apartment at 215 West 13th Street. So Nin and Moore bought end paper, small lots which are not usable by big publishers, but ideal for us, good paper. By January, the press had been delivered to the new space and they borrowed a book from the library on how to print. Uh, and so, yeah, I, there's something just delightful about all of that. There's some fantastic photos online of Nin using the press, which would, uh, the treadle press, I believe, you you pump with your feet. Um but she wrote some really striking bits in her diaries about um, about the nature of printing your own work. Uh, and I wanted to share those because I, I just think they're really beautiful. Um, so, quote, The relationship to handcraft is a beautiful one. You are related bodily to a solid block of metal letters, to the weight of the trays, to the adroitness of spacing, to the tempo and temper of the machine. You acquire some of the weight and solidity of the metal, the strength and power of the machine, 
Each triumph is a conquest by the body, fingers, muscles. You live with your hands in acts of physical deafness. You pitch your faculties against concrete problems. The victories are concrete, definable, touchable. A page of perfect printing. You can touch the page you wrote. We exult in what we master and discover. Instead of using one's energy in a void against frustrations, in anger against publishers, I use it on the press, type, paper, a source of energy. Solving problems, technical, mechanical problems, which can be solved, unlike dealing with publishers, apparently. If I pay no attention, then I do not lock the tray properly, and when I start printing, the whole tray of letters falls into the machine. The words which first appeared in my head, out of the air, take body, Each letter has a weight. I can weigh each word again to see if it's the right one. I use soapboxes as shelves to hold tools, papers, inks. I arrive loaded with old rags for the press, old towels for the hands, coffee, sugar. The press mobilized our energies and is a delight. At the end of the day, you can see your work, weigh it. It is done. It exists. I don't know. Isn't that gorgeous? It is very gorgeous. I could imagine doing that with my own work. There is something uh, that I think we have lost with word processors and computers. You don't hold the thing in your hands. You don't see the work you've done, like carpentry or something similar to that. Oh, it's so, it is so different. And, and, and finding a way to that is something that, that might be a good thing for writers in general. I mean, I've always found handwriting and then typing what I've handwritten, there seems to be a disconnect, a different version of me types out what the previous version hand wrote. And there's sort of a conversation that goes on almost. And likewise with editing, I prefer to print out things that I edit and draw little notes all over them. It's like the handwriter comes back and goes, no, 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 you've done it wrong. Here, let me put in these corrections. And then, of course, you enter them in uh, through the word processor. And that version of you takes up control again. But there is this idea, and, and she has one other thing I, I'd like to read to you. This is a little bit, um, a little bit shorter. But this really grabbed me. Okay, so... Uh, quote. Uh, so this was, uh, this was three months later in April. Uh, in her diary, she wrote, quote, take the letter O out of the box, place it next to the T, then a comma, then a space, and so on. Count page one, two, three, and so on. Select the good ones while Gonzalo runs the machine day after day. We are nearing the end. I have difficulties with the separation of words, and it is a problem in setting type. My separation of the word love into L-O and V-E became years later the favorite of the fault finders. The rewriting is often improved by the fact that I live so many hours with a page that I am able to scrutinize it, to question the essential words. In writing, my only discipline has been to cut out the unessential typewriting is like film cutting the discipline of typesetting and printing is good for the writer isn't that an interesting idea it is i think the act of creating something amazing and beautiful is having that time and space to connect with it and just sit with it um, as opposed to just always being in a rush which i think we are nowadays 
Yeah, and I, I've been thinking a lot about this. It's, it's been it's been plaguing my dreams. I was thinking, you know, how you know, we don't, we can't all get these uh, these printing presses and and you know pump them with our feet and create our books that way. But try this at home, folks. This is this is the idea I have. So this ties it all in together. I know you can get these magnetic letters, little blocks. And I believe that they are often marketed to couples to leave sexy messages to each other in little blocks on the fridge, etc. So this feels very appropriate, right? Buy a whole bunch of those. Cost be damned. Buy a whole bunch. And when you write a page of whatever you're working on, put it up on the fridge, one letter at a time. Space it out, just like you're typesetting a, an old printer. And see if if you don't make last-minute changes. Bless you. See if you don't make last-minute changes because I think that that might be the case, that when you fill each letter and you place each letter down to be read by your significant other later that day, there might be some moments where you go, you know what, this is another editing process and I need to make X, Y, and Z changes. And I, I think that would be really interesting. I intend to try this myself in any case because Nin was very moved by it. And, uh, you know, she's a pretty wise lady. So I'm going to give it a go. And I reckon everyone should try it at home. Okay. Well, I'll let Joan know that she won't be expecting any sexy messages. No, not sexy messages, <laughs> just just the nonsense I'm writing. You could also use a Scrabble board, I suppose. Not the, not the board, but the pieces. Get yourself a little felt back. Oh, that's a good idea. Ooh, a bit cheaper. I reckon you would get a lot of um, cheap Scrabble boards from op shops and just collect a whole bunch. Yeah, and, you know, they actually weigh the letters, don't they, in terms of their value. Uh, you know, E's are worth one, uh, F's are worth four. It's amazing I know this. Uh, so, you know, you could always count up the weight of each page in terms of its letter value. Uh, because the value of the letters is is in their um, uniqueness, uh, and I wonder if there's anything in that. Like, you know, if you're if you're a writer who who's really using language to its fullest, you'd probably get some X's floating around in your in your writing, wouldn't you? You get some Z's slipping in there somehow mysteriously. So that could be an interesting exercise to see what the average page you write is worth in terms of its Scrabble score. Mm. I think we should maybe make some games or, you know, we should make our own words for people to buy on our website, you know, just another way to make money. Talking about money, I'm going to segue us to talking about Andy Weir. Something that I missed on talking about E.L. James was that most of her money from her success I mean, including her book, it has sold over 100 million copies, but she got a great movie deal. I believe it was from Paramount, and I think they paid almost $10 million for that. And she also made a significant amount of money from franchising, not franchising, merchandising. So they even had a special teddy bear that was a Fifty Shades of Grey teddy bear that came with uh, plush handicuffs. So, yeah, and I think uh, that's mostly how Lucas makes money, right, from his – because he owns the merchandising. Yeah, with Star Wars, somehow he knew to 
uh, to bargain for the merchandising, which was really incredible at the time because merchandising wasn't so profitable. Don't know how he worked that one out, but that worked out really well. And then, of course, that allowed him to create his special effects studio. And I suspect that's where most of his money comes from now. Yeah, it would be interesting to find out. And another popular, well, a successful author self-published and he also got a movie deal within the same week. So we're within four days of publishing, um, well, getting a traditional publishing deal. And this is Andy Weir, who his movie The Martian grossed in $630 million worldwide. Um, So, again, his story is interesting. And you would remember these days, Gareth, when they used to have serialized stories uh, in magazines and newspapers chapter by chapter. Mm. I do remember. I mean, I, I didn't. I, I don't remember personally because because it does actually precede. I'm not that old, but I am. I am aware. Of, <laughs> Sorry. I am. I am aware of, uh, of serializing and, and particularly its golden era through pulps and, and so forth. Yeah, uh, I bring it back. Mm. I say it's a great uh, thing. Yeah. Well, I, I actually think this is something that I'm going to recommend uh, to authors and aspiring writers because we've seen it worked for E.L. James, it's worked for Andy Weir, um, and I'm going to talk about another author a bit later on. But it generally seems to be instead of going after the gatekeepers of the publishing industry, so you have your agents, which are incredibly difficult to get, if you send unsolicited manuscripts to a publisher, you're going to sit on the slush pile and it's very unlikely that you're going to get read. Um, but again, we do have survival bias in these authors that we are talking about. But Andy Weir's story, he originally works, well, he does, well, actually, I think he's quit now, but he was working as a software engineer. He took three years off that job to write a novel. And during that time, he sent multiple letters to agents, to publishers about his novel that he'd written, didn't see any success. So he went back to his job. And then in the meantime, he just convinced himself that this would be a hobby of his. He never believed that he would get a traditional publishing deal. So he created, uh, in his own words, an abhorrent website where he, um, depending on how he was feeling, he would release uh, serialized chapters of his book that he was working on, The Martian. And during that time, he would get emails from fans and fans begging him to keep releasing and actually talk to him about some of the science that he had introduced into the novel. So he actually, I think the terminology you would use would he crowdsourced the science and technology behind his book that he used to the point that when he finished, people sent him emails saying, we hate your website. I can't figure out how to download uh, your book. Can you please just make it on available on Amazon? Which he did. And the lowest possible price he listed it for on Amazon was 99 cents. Didn't think it was going to sell. It blew up, became the number one bestseller on Amazon. And within a couple of weeks after that, he got uh, the book deal from Crown Publishing and also Uh, the movie deal as well. So his book has now sold over an estimated 3 million copies. And again, he has that movie deal with The Martian and he's got another movie deal coming out called Hail Mary, which is another novel he's released. Uh, So again, my conclusion so far is maybe start releasing your stuff on website and getting that fan base before you even attempt to go see a publisher because that's what publishers are looking for. Do you have a fan base? Are you marketable? Yeah, look, I think that's good advice. Um, 
I suppose the the counterpoint though is, uh, you know, if you serialize your work, you, you you probably do need to know where you're going with it. Um, which would not suit me. I mean, I always think I know where I'm going, and then I end up somewhere else. Uh, so I would find serializing work that I was as I was writing it, uh, and, and a lot of writers have done this. Um, I would find that a bit stressful, I suppose, and possibly a bit uh, constricting. Um, but it really depends on the kind of writer you are, and, and certainly um, serialized work. I mean, Dickens was serialized, for example, his work. Um, and, and it was a great way to build an audience. You know, I, um, people would sort of grab something very affordable. I can't remember what Beatrix Potter said, but, you know, a little bunny amount of, of money and, and develop, you know, a real passion for it. And then, and then, then it became more profitable. So that does seem like a really, a really clever way to do it. Um, and I suppose in an odd way, that's sort of what E.L. James was doing as well in a way, I mean, she was producing work, but it's working way up through the platforms. Um, and yeah, you, you establish that you do have a readership and your work is tested, I suppose. Uh, so that does make a lot of sense. And when I was researching for Andy Weir, cause you brought up the question yesterday, but why are these people successful? Especially when we talk about some like E.O. James, an article that I read brought up these are specific niches. I potentially do believe this for Andy Weir. So his books has been backed up uh, by credible scientists who said, yes, we could go to Mars and using this technology that, that you've brought up. So everything in his book is realistic and it's been scientifically proven. Uh, so they mentioned just having this level of niche within your market. And I don't know if you would uh, say that E.L. James had a niche. I don't know if um, mummy porn was around before then. I mean, you had Anais Nin, um, but no one's heard about her. So I don't know if that particular reasoning works for E.L. James, but for Andy Weir, definitely, he had a particular niche that people were desperate to get their hands on. Yeah, and I mean, it, to, to my way of thinking, it, it doesn't make any sense. There have been some fantastic erotic writers. None of them have ever tended to do very well. Um, hard science fiction, as far as I can tell, does not sell as well as soft science fiction in general. So if you were trying to like predict trends, they're not really indicative of, of, of what could be predicted. Uh, and maybe that's what you have to take away from all this is that moods change, tastes change, and life is chaos. So, uh, you know, Maybe it's all about judging work on its merit or some aspect of its merit and, and, and really being able to see what people will connect with if you're, if you're a publisher. That looking at trends and, and, and the way things have gone in the past is not the best indicator for where things are going to go in the future. Um, but for authors, I mean, what, what should be clear by now is that there are no experts going, oh, we know what's coming next because they don't exist. Uh, it's, it's, it's completely random. So if you think you've created something great, you should believe in it. And if, uh, you know, if a publisher says, no, it's rubbish, well, they've been proven wrong so many times. They could be wrong again. They might not be, but they pretty much could be. 
So, yeah. But that does leave... And following on on that, don't waste your time or your money on books titled How to Write a Bestseller because they don't know what they're talking about. Yes, I saw one of those in the secondhand bookstore and I almost bought it for this podcast and then I thought, come on, Gareth, you, you need to buy shaving cream. Can't afford to be buying these books just for laughs. Um, I did read through it you know, in the, in the store and if you'd been there, you would have heard a few chuckles, a few wry chuckles. Uh, it, it basically was giving uh, examples of successful books, picking out key scenes and saying, write it like this, whatever you're writing, write it like this and then you'll be good. And again, the history proves to us again and again, just bashes us over the head with the idea that there are no established structures that are permanently successful. So in fact, that's a terrible book to, to look to for any sort of advice. But my last one is uh, the Hogarth Press. The Hogarth Press uh, was run by Virginia and Leonard Wolf. Uh, I'm sure we've talked about Virginia Wolf uh, before, uh, certainly in terms of free writing. Uh, Again, I'm just going to read you a little quote. I don't have a lot uh, to share quote-wise this time, but I thought this this was quite amusing. Um, this is from the, uh, la, 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 the British Library, a uh, very reputable source probably. Uh, on the afternoon of the 23rd of March, 1917, Leonard and Virginia Woolf were work- walking down Farrington Road in London when their attention was caught by the window display of the Excelsior Printing Supply Company. Excelsior. They had been discussing the possibility of taking up printing for a while, and towards the end of 1916 decided they would definitely do it. They'd even gone as far as inquiring about enrolling at St. Bride's School of Printing, only to be turned down because courses were only open to trade union apprentices whose numbers were strictly controlled. Nevertheless, undeterred, they entered the small printing supplier and explained their plight. They were greeted by a helpful assistant in brown overalls who convinced them that with the aid of a 16-page booklet, they would be able to teach themselves all they needed to know to get started. Isn't that hilarious? So for the sum of 19 pounds, five shillings, the Wolves became the proud owners of a small hand printing press, some old-faced type, and all the other necessary paraphernalia to begin their printing endeavour. The printing press was duly installed on the dining room table at their home, Hogarth House, which gave the press its name. And we'll put it up. Uh, we might, well, 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 we'll be all fancy, but this is a copy. Am I doing this right? This is a copy of the letter to basically announce that they were becoming a publisher. And it's quite lovely. They basically... Discuss what they're, you know, what they're, what they're hoping to get for the books, and and it's very modestly set out. But but Hogarth Press are really notable because besides um, Virginia Woolf, they published early works. So in the first five years that they existed, they published works by Catherine Mansfield, T. S. Eliot, E. M. Forster, uh, and Sigmund Freud. Where would we be without Hogarth Press, I ask you? Uh, and, and I think this is, this is what I've taken away from, um, from reading up on Hogarth Press. It was a vehicle primarily for Virginia Woolf. 
Um, but unlike a lot of those uh, exercises, um, they actually did print other people's works as well. And small publishers, small independent traditional publishers, this is very much their space. It's certainly true today too that if you want to find interesting writing, new writing, sometimes old writing that's been reprinted, but if you want to find the interesting stuff, and, you know, I know I'm hanging myself here in terms of future publishing, but you don't go to the big five folks. You just don't. You don't, you don't bother. Um, there's very little interesting stuff coming out of the big five, in my opinion. All the really interesting stuff, all the, all the interesting names that we may one day remember as, as key writers of our era are getting published by small independent publishers, uh, much like Hogarth Press used to be. Um, and I, I think that's, that again, you know, we, we talked about previously, Shannon, you know, if you want to impact the literary scene, start a publishing house. Uh, so by all means, self-publish, uh, which is a great thing to do, says Jane Austen. But also uh, maybe publish your friends, you know, maybe expand it a little bit to some works that interest you. Um, that you're willing to get behind, uh, form little cooperatives and, and help, you know, with, with other writers and help each other by marketing each other, uh, spread the load. And uh, you never know what kind of effect you'll have. But, yeah, that would be my, my final entry into self-publishing. Self and other publishing, I think there's some value to that concept. I think starting a cop is a great idea because, and I, I think this heralds back to our podcast episodes on literary censorship, and we are very passionate about the future of fiction and diversity. And as you said, Gareth, if you go to the traditional publishing houses, the big five, uh, I'm talking about in particular, not only will you get uh, shortchanged on your advance, depending on how big you are or how successful they think your novel is going to be, they're most likely not going to be that interested in incredibly creative works. They want to know, does this match something that we've sold before because we care about our bottom line? You know, in the end, they are a business. And I think co-ops and starting our own publishing houses, we can move forward uh, fiction and uh, the literary world in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a, someone, a problem shared is a problem halved or quartered or fifth, depending on how many people you start working with. And and I would think that for a lot of writers, if they found their tribe, you know, they talk about finding a tribe, um, it does actually make sense. If, you, if you're writing with other people uh, or next to other people, and you're sharing your work with them and they're sharing their work with you and you like what you're seeing from them, why not team up and help each other get published? Uh, and, you know, if you have a team of five people handling your marketing, including you, that's a lot larger than most big publishing houses in terms of the amount of people they're going to put on your project. So, you know, and, and you're obviously motivated. It's, it's your future, not somebody else's in a sense. You, 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 um, you combine your fortunes. 
I agree, and I think that someone who truly loves your book is going to be the best marketer in the whole entire world. Not someone who's getting paid a salary. Someone who dearly loves your book is going to talk about all the time, and you know that's the power of word. And a segueing from there into the power of word and just creative uh, masterpieces that aren't um, picked up by traditional publishers or publishers. I want to move back to Australia and talk about a very special book called Grimish by Michael Winkler. Now, this book was firmly rejected by Australian publishing houses. And um, I think uh, Winkler had the final laugh because his book was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award in 2022. And it is the first self-published entry to make the list in the prize of 65 years history. And uh, I just want to I'll give you a quote from what Winkler uh, said about his journey from uh, not being known essentially to having his book self-published and then later getting picked up by a publisher and then uh, the Miles Franklin shortlist. Quote, I was told it was worrisome and it acquired taste. One publisher called it repellent. End quote. Winkler recall, recalls some of the more pointed rebuffs. Quote, everyone said there was no way they could sell it. End quote. Uh, so what he did, he paid for 500 copies of um, his book and he promoted it on uh, social media and to his friends and family and he eventually was able to sell all those copies and it wasn't until the Miles Franklin that he was able to get picked up by a publisher. But uh, given that people did buy those 500 copies and he ordered another print run, people loved this story. And again, we got that classic tale from publishers saying, you know, there is no marker for it and no one's going to want to buy this book. And, and to um, be fair to the publishers, it's about an obscure boxer in history. No one's ever heard of, really. Um, and yes, it, a it imagines from Chile. His, uh, the empty bits of his, like what little there is of his life story that one can glean from history. It imagines around that. And it's very experimental. It includes a talking goat. Don't ask me why. And to be fair to publishers, I can see they might go, well, you know, who's going to buy this? Look at what sells right now. But again, you just don't know. Uh, and this, this has done well. And, uh, you know, you've kind of got to be in it to win it. Like you've got to get your work out there. And I think uh, Winkler, you know, if he'd been around when they started off, Winkler's the kind of guy that Hogarth Press would have possibly pushed whilst expecting it not to work out. Uh, and and it's certainly, I believe, um, Alan and Unwin um, published Lord of the Rings expecting it not to work out. And look how that worked out. So, you know, I mean, really, I think maybe the lesson here is that you got to sort of suck it and see. Uh, so if there's a way to get your book out into the world, worst thing that can happen is it won't and sell. I think, yeah. And I think Winkler is a different, slightly different story to Andy Weir and someone like E.L. James because Winkler actually won the Calibre Essay Prize, which is a pretty phenomenal prize, quite a big uh, money prize pool through the Australian Book Review, which is one of our literary magazines here. He won that in 2016 with his essay called The Red Whale. He also works as a journalist. He's done essays and uh, book reviews on a lot of our uh, magazines, such as the Sydney Morning Herald, Mianjin, 
uh, Overlander. So he was already kind of in that space. People knew about him and he still had uh, this trouble of getting his book presented even to Australian publishers, which I find very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, I, I suppose they don't think that any of that counts for anything in terms of a book readership. But I wonder if it shouldn't or I wonder if it wouldn't. Now, if you sort of, uh, you know, a battle-hardened writer, and it's true that when you write for publication, you know, articles and so forth, you really do get a certain match fitness. I, I was actually thinking just the other day, Shannon, that I was going to maybe start looking into writing theater reviews again because uh, it really does um, keep you on your toes. You've got no time to be precious. Uh, you just have to, you know, between research and final draft is a few hours and you've got to get that stuff done. You've got to get it out to a, to the editor and hopefully it's, it's not going to be terrible. And you find that the more you do that, the, the more adept you are at pulling things together quickly. So he would have had all that, uh, all that skill. And mm. for something as weird as Grimish, and Grimish is a weird book, uh, it's a book I'm tremendously excited about reading. I got a copy for my birthday, which was recently, folks, so happy birthday to me. Um, I I think that, you know, I mean, I love boxing. And I love the history of boxing. Uh, so, so it very much, and I love talking goats. I mean, who doesn't? Um, so it's very much suited to me. But I think a weird book like that, you need a writer that actually does have writing experience, a lot of writing experience, pulling things together, uh, you know, maybe even under a bit of pressure. So I think, yeah, I think, I think he was probably the guy to write that book uh, beyond obviously his interest in doing so. And I wonder if these are things publishers miss, that, that, that readers will appreciate a weird book that actually holds together because some weird books don't hold together. Um, you know, and, and things like that, the, the stuff that you wouldn't necessarily say are selling points. There may be far more selling points, uh, than previously imagined in their philosophy. Yeah. What is our conclusion? Uh, what, what's well, your conclusion? I think my conclusion is that the nature and dynamics of the publishing industry is changing dramatically to the point that not even the big five publishing houses are going to be able to keep up with what the audience and what readers want. So I don't think that people should wait knocking at the door of these gatekeepers anymore. I think that more people should be open to self-publishing and I say that with a bit of a caveat because I think if you're going to self-publish, do it right. Go get yourself an editorial team, pay that money, even though it is going to be a bit of money up front, but please produce good stuff because people want to read it. And I think I know personally for myself, I'm probably going to be going down that self-publishing route and especially uh, reading a lot of these success stories. But I am mindful and I do want authors to be mindful that Anything you write is not going to be a guaranteed success. A lot of this is up to luck and changing taste, unfortunately. I mean, who knows? Who's not to say that your book is going to be famous 100 years after your death? You just don't know. And I think if you want to go down this avenue, uh, you either need a very rich Patreon or a website page where people can donate to you and support you or have a wealthy spouse, and you should be writing for the enjoyment of just writing not uh, expecting that you're going to get a big hit. But fingers crossed, everyone does. 
Yeah, I'd agree with all that. I mean, the, the joy of writing is in the producing of the writing, um, or at least it is for me. And I think it is for a lot of people. So the idea of producing a book as well, being involved in that process, it is quite appealing. Um, maybe working with designers and seeing what they come up with and sort of saying, this is what, what was in my head, you know, for, for a cover or some sort of image. That's all, you know, creative collaboration is all really satisfying. And God knows what is life about. It's not about money. So, so I think there's a lot of appeal to self-publishing. Uh, uh, and certainly, you know, there's nothing wrong with going with a traditional publisher, particularly if they if they rate you and, and actually, you know, want to put in effort into, into getting you out into the world, that's, that's terrific. Um, but history is, is full, jam-packed with writers who were ignored, who, who later um, became significant publishing successes. And so, you know, you could be one of them. And, and there are certainly a lot of very great writers who chose to self-publish. There's no shame in it. I, I know when I was younger, uh, the way it was presented to me was if you self-published, it was the same as vanity publishing and it was just because no one would really actually want to publish your work or read it. But that's not true, is it? It's a little bit of a, a bit of a fun myth that helps, uh, you know, publishers maintain a good grip on the industry. Uh, and I also just want a big shout-out to independent publishers because they really, like, there are some stunning independent publishers who put in huge amounts of effort uh, and pick writers that are perhaps not always very safe bets at all because they believe in what they've written. And I think when you have an ally like that, it's nothing to... Um, you know, nothing to sneeze at. It's, it's a great thing, but you know, it doesn't happen for everyone. And, and that isn't always based on merit. So yeah, I think, I think, our, I think we're giving self-publishing a thumbs up and saying thumbs up to self-publishing. It's good. And also check out smaller independent publishers. So a big thumbs up from us for self-publishing and next fortnight, uh, I think we were going to do something slightly different because we've actually been podcasting for one year Ooh. now. And I think we wanted to talk about all the lessons that we've learned and takeaways and advice for other people that uh, want to have their own podcasting platform. Does that sound like a great idea, Gareth? That does sound like a great idea. I did not know we were doing that. I, you probably told me and I've forgotten because, you know, there was that gap. Uh and it really a gap of more than five minutes. I forget what's happening. So yes, I, I'm 100% on board that. I think uh, I feel like we've learned a lot. I feel like our mistakes are on the screen too for everyone to enjoy. Uh, so I think we can speak to those. <laughs> have a clip show of of awkward moments uh, and three weeks later bleakers. signs. <laughs> <laughs> things like that yeah no i think that would be a lot of fun uh and then the week after that we're going to do the sort of um uh companion piece to this podcast which will be about uh self suppression i suppose writers who wanted to get rid of the unpublished themselves essentially which which should be a lot of fun uh and there's some fantastic stories about what writers have done to try to remove themselves uh, from from existence. 
so yes, that, that should be that should be a giggle too. So that's the next two weeks. They will actually be the next two weeks. I think we're not going to take any more breaks for a while. Uh, and I think on a previous draft of this podcast, I mentioned I'm going to mention it again because I, I just feel like some people out there are like me and they get anxious about this stuff. Uh, we're going to make a promise to our listeners that if we're ever planning to disappear for good, we will actually announce it. We'll have a special episode, with, you know, all dressed in black going, well, this is it. I'll wear a Abe Lincoln top hat. I'll grow my beard back, but no moustache. And we'll really, you know, we'll make it funereal. Uh, so, so if we disappear for a few weeks, that's probably because we're having adventures or, or, or just being incredibly disorganized. Um, so you don't need to worry if indeed you were. So, yeah, I think you've got to say goodbye. I think that's one of the lessons with podcasting. You've got to say goodbye if you're leaving. Okay. Well, we are leaving now and it is goodbye, but it's until the next fortnight and we'll see everyone uh, in a fortnight's time on The Pleasure of the Text. Yes. Bye, folks. Bye, guys. Bye.